title our message today is An Influential Woman, Acts 16, 11 through 15. If you're visiting with us today, we go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We find ourselves in the middle of Acts in this passage. Here it is. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, there's many things that we don't know in regards to the Bible, things that we don't get, things we don't understand. And if we're all honest, there are things we don't like, but we believe it's your word. We believe through the facts of history and archaeology, bibliographical evidence, your word is something special, unique among any other book ever written. And you've given it to us and you've preserved it for us that we could have a record of what was given to those original hearers of each of these letters. And now as we open up this book of Acts and we read this story of a woman from 2,000 years ago, teach us, inspire us, work in us. We need your touch. We need your work. Wherever we're at, if we've come to this place bored about church, if we've come to this place disinterested, if we've come to this place excited, it doesn't matter. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take each and every person and speak to them as only you can. You're a lot more powerful than any of us here. And so we open ourselves up to you and we thank you for your work in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Samothrace was not a destination for this missionary team. It was actually a mountainous island with a peak that stood over a mile. And this served as a a point of reference as people sailed along the Aegean Sea, which was an arm of the Mediterranean. Stopping at Neapolis, which is a modern-day Kavala, part of Greece, this team ended up in Philippi, which was 10 miles inland from the port there at uh, Neapolis. Now, Philippi was one city as a part of four different districts of this area in the Macedonia region. The city was a colony of veteran Roman soldiers. And since the city was largely made up of Roman citizens, there was not a synagogue there. And Paul would have normally started every ministry of his and every city that he went to, he would start teaching in the synagogues. That was his custom. Ten Jewish men were needed to start a synagogue. So however many Jews were there, we don't know for sure. But we know that when there wasn't a synagogue, they would still make it a practice to pray, particularly on the Sabbath. And Jewish people preferred to meet in a ritually pure place near water and a river fit the bill. The Gangites River was 
just over a mile from the city gates of Philippi. So this made for a great spot for ritual washing of hands before prayer. Now, it may appear like some innocuous band of women at a riverbank was praying, but we would do this passage great disservice if we didn't recognize what Luke is saying, that no detail is unimportant. It was women. Women. And women had great influence upon Christianity in the first century. In Acts 17.4, we read about leading women at Thessalonica, joining Paul. In Acts 17.12, we read of women of high standing. A woman named Damaris boldly joined Paul in the midst of a crowd that was harassing him, mocking him about the resurrection. A woman stood with him. That's in Acts 17, 32, and 33. We read in Acts 18, at Corinth, Paul was residing with a couple. The wife's name was Priscilla. She and her husband were tent makers. They fled Rome because Claudius had kicked out the Jews. Paul stayed at their home as a base for his ministry for a year and a half. How women had influence varied, as these passages tell, but they had great influence. They were an important reason for the spread of Christianity. In 2013, Sheryl Sandberg, a Harvard business school grad, former assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury, COO of Facebook, by the way, wrote her bestseller, Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. During her years of working different companies and with the government, she said she discovered that all too often women hold themselves back. They stifle their dreams, their their ambitions, their careers, and even their personal lives. So she was calling for women to lean in to their ambitions, their dreams, their talents. As you might expect, her book created some controversy, and an equally accomplished woman named Rosa Brooks, a professor at Georgetown Law School, argued that the problem isn't women, but with society, which continues to expect women to bear the brunt of household responsibilities, child-rearing, even as they pursue their careers and their dreams. Her advice was not for women to lean in, but lean back, put their feet up. She says women need to resist these unreasonable expectations in the home and, and in the workplace by refusing to just work harder. Women of the world, she says, it is time to recline. Right? Then the church comes along, and it tells women to live on mission, on top of everything else, to be a part of the Great Commission. Lean in, lean back. Many women are frustrated with all the responsibilities. I mean, it's certainly not unique to women. Men feel attention as well. And the question as a servant of Christ 
in the kingdom of God is, how do we manage all of these responsibilities? I mean, there's not enough time to do all that I have to do, and there's, there's great frustration. I can't be a part of every organization I want to be a part of. I mean, I might affect fractional change as I spread myself too thin on, on multiple fronts. I'm certainly not here to tell you what organizations you should or should not be a part of or if or where you should work, but I am to say our number one responsibility as people on this earth and as Christians is to serve and be connected to our king. Whatever the other responsibilities mean, it starts there. I mean, we often think of responsibilities in a linear fashion, don't we? I mean, we've all been taught it's, a, you know, it's God, and then, and then family, and then church, and then work, and whatever else you might have in your life. I don't know about you, but life has never presented itself to me in such an easy, linear fashion. Not so neatly packaged in such an array. Rather, I think a more practical way, and I think a more life-giving way, is to see it more as a wheel, with Christ as the hub. And attached to the hub are different spokes on the wheel that might represent home and church and family and work. Our life, our relationships, our responsibilities flow from the hub who is Christ. My security and my significance are found in the hub, Christ. Not through the spokes on the wheel. I mean, we often think of the spokes on the wheel as our security and our significance on on the roles that we play in each of those areas, do we not? And this leads to us making all kinds of comparisons, and I think it leads to frustration, and it leads to disconnect, uh, discontent, excuse me, and a disconnect, actually, a disconnect from our hub of Christ. But we're frustrated. Because life is not flowing from Christ. It just, you know, I got these things to do and people are on me to do this and do that and, and whatever area it is and I'm just frustrated. I think I just described many Christians. And what happens, Christ is just one of the spokes for a lot of Christians. He's not the hub, he's just one of the other many things in the church, just one of the many things I want to be a part of. And frankly, I just don't have time for that. Instead of Christ being our identity, he's just one of many ways that we get our identity. So life just becomes about doing our duty, measuring up. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not just, you know, talking at you. I am acutely aware of this pressure because I have grabbed those spokes so tightly, only to find discontent. Because what we see happening is we make idols of one of these roles that we serve in. 
and it's always discontent. So here's my encouragement to us today, especially to women, since they're the subject of this passage. Your identity, your significance, your security are in Christ alone. Your identity is not in fulfilling a role that you may play or function in. Nothing wrong with the role, but that's not who you are. My identity is not that I'm a father. It's not that I'm a husband. It's not that I'm a pastor. My identity is something bigger and more certain. Because here are the facts. I could lose every one of those roles in some horrific circumstance. I could lose being a pastor. I could lose my wife. I could lose my kids. Does that mean I cease being a person? Does that mean I lose my identity? Does that mean I'm no longer important? What does that mean for us? The life I live has to be with Christ at the center. My hub feeds me, directs me, and whatever role that God presents to me. And so I seek to operate in each of those ways with Christ as my life, Christ as my security. And I think women can feel an acute pressure because the roles are equated with the identity. And frankly, many times the church does not help. The church hurts. Because they are, they are accentuating the roles equal to the identity. We elevate it to a, an idol. Instead of realizing it, it flows from Christ. Again, it's not to diminish the roles. It's so that we don't make an idol of the roles. And so that Christ can be our life. Every one of us here have experienced the frustration. Every one of us here have tried to live the Christian life on our own, just doing our duty. And I'm here to say, there's another way. Christ is our hub. Christ is our life. Christ is our identity. Christ is our security. Christ is our significance. You know, the Apostle Paul actually touched on the significance of our position as children of God being greater than any status. And if ever in our human history, human beings are groping for what brings identity. No, it's not this sex, it's that sex. No, it's not this job, it's that job. We're groping. Who am I? And and what happens then, human beings take on the role of God. I'll make myself an idol. I'll determine what my identity is. I'll tell you who I am. I'm not a a creature made by the creator. I am my own God. And I will dictate what I am. It's the ultimate arrogance of human beings. And so women, it's something bigger. It's something more dynamic It's something more sure. And the Apostle Paul touches on it when he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
It's not about your nationality. There is neither slave nor free. It's not your job. It's not your status in life. There is no male or female. It's not the roles that you do according to one of those sexes. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not denying the roles we fill. He's not denying race. He's not denying, you know, the gender of the individual. He's merely saying that those things are distinct from our identity in Christ. This is great news for the believer. Because it doesn't matter whether you're married or single, Jew or Greek, white or black, male or female, with children or not, we are clothed in Christ and his righteousness. We are holy and blameless before him. We are adopted through Jesus Christ. We are blessed in the beloved. We are fit to obtain an inheritance. We are redeemed and forgiven. We have been delivered from a domain of darkness into the domain of light. We have been raised with Christ. My brothers and sisters, when, when our personhood and value are firmly rooted in Christ, any role we play is joyfully entered into as a vehicle to live out that significance that security with great freedom. And the reason it's a bondage for many Christians is because they're hooking up their security and significance to those things. And they're not getting approval with those things because they're searching for approval by those closest to them. And you are on that hamster wheel just hoping you'll do enough to get the approval. And it's never enough. Christ is our security. You know what I realize? Sometimes I'm a crappy husband. Sometimes I'm not a good father. Sometimes I suck at being a pastor. But my identity is not in those things. Now, I want to do a good job. I try to repent if I do something wrong. But I have to separate myself and my my identity from those roles that I fill. Or else, honestly, it'd be too, de- too depressing. I'm the hardest person on myself, and I got a feeling, you know, most of you are the same way. Nobody's harder on you than you. <laughs> so you look at all of your failings, right? And it's hard if that is the focus of our lives and how well we you know, fulfill those roles. Oh, I want to sup with him. I want him to feed me. I need him to fill my soul. I don't know about you, but I need all I can get every day. I got a feeling when Paul was speaking to these women at that riverbank, there was something that was rising up within them. Uh, there was something that was resonating in their souls. And as a result, you know what happened? Lydia came to Christ, and the gospel spread throughout Europe with a conversation by a river. 
What do we know about her? Well, Lydia was a seller of purple goods and worshiper of God. Luke thinks it's important enough to let us know what she did for a living and that she had a home. These are not just incidental details. Now, purple dye was gathered by shellfish, and it was a very costly process. So she had a job that had to be paying well. So she's not a poor woman. She was one of means. She was also a worshiper of God. This is usually used of Gentiles who were attracted to and practicing Judaism. And then our passage says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Notice that it was the spirit of God that moved in her heart that led her to faith. Without God's initiative, none of us would come to Christ. The Bible says of those outside of faith, they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. They got a million reasons why they want to believe with God. Well, they can't believe Christ. Think of themselves as so smart. You know, never let any facts get in the way of you believing your worldview, right? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, you can't just walk up to people and say, yeah, you're ignorant, you know, because you don't believe this. No. Because why? It's due to their hardness of heart. It's not a mind problem. It's not having the facts in front of them. It's a heart problem. Something has to change inside first, and only God can do that. God has to initiate the process. You can talk until you're blue in the face to somebody, but if God doesn't activate something within them, that doesn't mean we're, we don't have the responsibility to share. We do. But God has to initiate the process. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except the Father draws them. No one comes to me except the Father draws them. Again, it doesn't mean that the individual is not responsible to respond to the gospel, but God merely starts the process. So, Lydia was interested in what Paul had to say concerning Jesus. She believed the gospel, and then she was baptized. I love this immediate response of obedience. Now, we have a clue that she was a person of influence because it tells us her household followed suit. They saw Lydia, and they go, well, I guess we got to follow on that. And sometimes it takes a relative or a close friend that we see operate in faith and trust Christ, and it puts the pressure on, right? And many times that's just the, the final push we need to, to come to Christ. And then we see a beautiful passage of how she was wielding her influence. She urged us. Again, there's a group of four people that Paul's a part of on this missionary team. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon them. I am not trying to sell you anything. I'm not going to get you over here and then, you know, show you my flip chart of my business that I want you to get involved in. No, it's not that at all. I have no other motive but to help you. My conversion is real. I just want to share with you what I have to help in this endeavor. Her immediate reaction was to offer hospitality, her home, to Paul and his friends. It's interesting that when later Paul would write about some of the main features of a Christian ethic, 
He says this in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. When Peter is steering new believers into walking with Christ, he says in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That means when they're over eating at your table, you don't complain about how much it costs. Right? You don't grumble. You, you joyfully give. And in Lydia's case, she, she insisted, she, she urged with an eagerness, a great earnestness for her home to be used by Paul and this missionary team. You can stay here. You can eat here. I'll do whatever I can to help you. And she was not going to take no for an answer. She prevailed upon them. Okay, all right, we'll stay. <laughs> I mean, you realize that hospitality is really more about attitude, right? I mean, I've been, and my oldest son and I went to South America many years ago, and I remember sitting down at a meal, we're having chicken with a couple just outside their hut, and they were hospitable, sharing with us what they had. And I know that was a great sacrifice for them, this chicken in, in, in a soup. I remember being in North Carolina to the back hills, and I was in high school, and this family that was just, it was squalor what they lived in. But they had us over for a meal. This guy was spitting out his tobacco during the meal. That grossed me out, but... Um, <laughs> And then they were offering the, the fried chicken and a pickle jar that looked like it was about 15 years old, and, you know. But it was all they had. You eat the food. That's what you're talking. You eat whatever was put in front of you. You don't comment on it. But they were hospitable. They were giving. The same in Guatemala. People who do not have a thing in terms of possessions but they give it to people because they, they want to be kind. They, they want to express love. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with how you're using what you have and realizing it's not yours, it's the Lord's. So you give it to serve, to benefit others. So I have to have a nice house, all new furniture. Just have to have the right attitude. By the way, if God owns all we have, who owns your house? It is God who has allowed you to be a steward of your possessions. And serious-minded Christians will be glad to utilize their possessions however they can for the sake of the kingdom of God. So you can either invest in the seven or so years that God might grant you here, or you can invest in eternity. It's your choice. And what a privilege it is to leverage our possessions our most prized possession, our home, to leverage that for the kingdom. That's a privilege. You know, Jan and I, we hope to be moving in a month or two. We've lived in our house for 33 years. We actually like our house. We love our house. But there have been, I don't know how many people have been through our house. We, we have updated every room in our house, and the value of our house is not in the updates. The value for us is the memories it's the, the people who've been through that I would guess have been in the thousands. We have a lot of people over. And we love that. That's the value. That's the value. 
That's, it's not a museum. It's a tool to utilize for the kingdom. It's really a call of discipleship. It's what it is. It's a recognition that he's Lord of all of it. He's Lord of your business. He's Lord of your possessions. He's Lord of your family. He's Lord of your job. If God wants our home to be used as a tool, and he wants us all to be hospitable, then that's a, that's a high privilege to use it for the kingdom of God. And we have, we have experienced that with many of you. I, I love that a family recently that we visited were in their home. They were just saying, well, we just want our home to be used for the Lord. Uh, we, we, just, we, we were just using this to see how many people we can minister to. It's a great, great idea. And listen, here's something you may not realize. Hebrews 13.2 says, we should be cognizant that when we show hospitality, you might be entertaining angels. Say, what? Well, now if you believe the record of the Bible and you believe there's a supernatural world, it's not a far leap to believe that there are angels. You know, you may not be convinced of that yet, but you know, if I believe that God can raise somebody from the dead like he did in Jesus, it's really not a big deal to believe that there are angels, okay? Not, not for me, at least. And angels apparently were involved in the Old and New Testament interacting with people, and God apparently hasn't pulled the plug on that. There are still angels that somehow interact, and you don't know it. You are unaware that sometimes when you are showing kindness to people, it's with a heavenly being. I know it's a bizarre thought, but it's pretty cool to think about that you can influence heavenly creatures with hospitality. Now, I'm not sure that you look under somebody's overcoat and say, hey, do you have wings? You know, you don't, you don't do that. Um, but you're just aware that your love and kindness are far-reaching. Your love gives value to the people that you host. And the impact of those acts of kindness can reverberate well beyond that one evening. I think of the many conversations that we've had on our back porch or in our living room with people. You never know what can happen as a result of that just by giving value to people. A home is a vehicle for that kind of ministry. And listen, if people are comfortable, they know that they are loved and they enjoy the food, hey, that's a win, right? That's a win. Lydia, having wealth, was merely given more opportunity and more responsibility because of what God had blessed her with. With wealth comes responsibility. Now, in one sense, we're all wealthy here. The fact is, is if you make in the mid-30s, in your household income, you are wealthier than 95% of the world. Think about that. Did you ever think of yourself as in the top 5%? So don't tell me you don't have anything. On the world scale, I mean, you are, you are rich. And yet, there can still be attitudes, even within the church, that cause people to judge those, for instance, who might have more. There's kind of a, a class envy that takes place. 
or to judge those who have less. You look down upon them. These kinds of attitudes distract us from whatever God has given us so that we can be responsible with that and we can be hospitable. So quit spending so much time thinking about the Joneses and just look at your own plate. Look at your own house. Look at your own time. Say, am I being a good steward of all this? How can I leverage what God has given me, what I am responsible for, how can I leverage that for the kingdom of God? Because that's where I want my investment going. And I see many of you doing that. You use the opportunities in your jobs to do that. You give of your time and energy to see how you can help the kingdom of God. And you use your possessions in the same way. And God bless you for doing that. This is what I'd like for us to do. I want us to all bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's right where we sit. Let's not waste time. You don't need any more illustrations. This is what the word of God says. So we are faced with the reality that we have a responsibility before God to leverage all that we've been given. How about you right now devote to God all of your possessions? It's all his. And however he wants you to use it. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Doesn't mean you can't entertain. Doesn't mean, you know, it's not to feel guilty for what God has given you, but it's his. So how can you filter that through the hub? I want you to talk to the Lord about that right now. And then if you have made an idol out of one of those spokes on the wheel, confess that to him. Come to grips with the fact that Christ is your security and your significance. Go before him now.